Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about lawsuits, or as the thumbnail says, is the Internet Archive engaged in copyright piracy? And to cut a long story short, I think the answer is probably yes. But to understand why, we're going to have to dive into some copyright materials. And first, we're going to talk about something called controlled digital lending. Now, this is a bit of a white paper. You can see it was last updated in September of 2018. If you look carefully, you will see that it was co-authored and sponsored effectively by the Internet Archive and two researchers that they wanted to have help them describe what it is that the Internet Archive wanted to do with their library resources. This is what they called controlled digital lending. This position statement on controlled digital lending, which you will see referred to as CDL in various places, offers a good faith interpretation of U.S. copyright law. Always a risk when you have to say it's good faith up front. It suggests that it might not sound like good faith as you read the entire thing. This statement only applies to in-copyright works as public domain works may be distributed without restriction. Of course. One of the most fundamental and socially beneficial functions of libraries is providing broad access to information by lending books and other materials to their communities. To lend materials more effectively, libraries can apply CDL to their collections in order to fulfill their mission. CDL techniques like those described in this statement are designed to mirror traditional library practices permitted by copyright law. Properly implemented, CDL enables a library to circulate a digitized title in place of a physical one in a controlled manner. Under this approach, a library may only loan simultaneously the number of copies that it has legitimately acquired, usually through purchase or donation. For example, if a library owns three copies of a title and digitizes one copy, it may use CDL to circulate one digital copy in two print, or three digital copies, or two digital copies in one print. In all cases, it could only circulate the same number of copies that it owned before digitization. Essentially, CDL must maintain an owned-to-loaned ratio. And this is exactly what the Internet Archive wanted to achieve and did achieve before this COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak, which is going to be at the heart of the lawsuit in question. They basically said, hey, we're going to acquire all these books. We're going to let people borrow them, borrow scans that we make of them in what we're calling an Internet library. And if we follow the CDL rubric, we think we are okay. And they wrote this white paper to kind of pre-defend themselves. And obviously they've been doing this for a little while. And you can tell that with this kind of backing, the publishers, the authors of these books didn't necessarily want to come after the Internet Archive for this kind of thing, although they were certainly watching it pretty carefully. But if you've been following virtual legality for any length of time, you probably know already that that doesn't quite sound right for the copyright laws, right? It doesn't quite sound like it's what they should be allowed to do with books. If we remember 17 USC 106, this is the bundle of rights that attaches to somebody that holds a copyright, like an author or a publisher of a book, and they have the exclusive right to do this list of things, to reproduce it, to prepare derivative works around it, to distribute it by sale or other transfer, to perform it, to display it, etc., etc. And if you don't have this right, if you aren't the owner of that copyright, you have to fall under some kind of exception to allow whatever it is that you want to do with it. In YouTube, as we've talked about, that's most often fair use. The 
rubric under the law that says, hey, if you're doing something transformative and educational or commentary and you're not using it all and you're not affecting the market for the work, then you can probably use it. And as we've seen with respect to the DMCA and other problems with the modern digital environment, even that kind of concept has an issue insofar as it's all gray area. It's all based on the facts and circumstances of any given issue. But without that kind of exception, you get into trouble, which is why they started talking about the exceptions that they think they fall under. As with traditional physical lending, there are two main areas of copyright law that support CDL. The principle of exhaustion, what we might think of as first sale, and the fair use doctrine. Traditional library lending has been common practice for hundreds of years, primarily due to the common law principle of exhaustion, which is codified in part at section 109 of the Copyright Act and is also known as the first sale doctrine. This legal set of rules mandates that anytime there is an authorized transfer of a copy of a copyrighted work, the rights holder's power to control the use and distribution of that copy is terminated or exhausted. If you've been in this space before, you know a number of people come in and comment, and I've also answered questions regarding whether or not software licenses, computer programs, things along those lines, have this kind of exhaustion feature. Traditionally in this space, as we talk about with respect to video games, and certainly in the United States, the courts have been very reluctant to apply first sale doctrine to licensed software programs, generally intellectual property that is licensed, period. And that makes a lot of sense. If you think about what exhaustion is really supposed to achieve, it's supposed to say there's one copy of this thing out there in the world, and you don't really need an intellectual property license to sell this product, to move it, to transfer it, to lend it, to do whatever it is you want to do with it. You're not really licensing the underlying IP. You're moving a physical object in space. And the law says, okay, that's probably okay. It also says, hey, that's going to get dog-eared. That's going to ultimately collapse, and it's not going to destroy the market for this particular product. Obviously, digital goods change that equation almost entirely. But if we actually look at the language here that they reference, 17 U.S.C. 109, we see that it specifically talks about a particular copy. Notwithstanding the other limitations in 106, the owner of a particular copy is entitled without the authority of the copyright owner to sell or otherwise dispose of the possession of that copy or phono record. Not to make more copies and distribute 15 copies of that one thing that they own, but to be able to actually move that one thing that they own. Note also that this section 109 is targeted specifically at the exclusive right stated in 106.3, which if we go back and look, is distribution and sale. 109 does not reference the other copyright exclusive provisions, reproduction, preparation of derivative works, performance, display. It talks about distribution and sale. So we already are working in a white paper environment that says, ah, you guys are kind of eliding the legal question to give you what you want because that's what you want but it doesn't really pass the smell test. Then they go on to say that, oh, also copying of books and lending them is fair use. And as we've talked about in this space, that seems a particularly difficult claim to make, that you have to meet the four-factor balancing test, and can they do that? They say the purpose and character of the use for a library is educational, and that the statement is not premised on it being transformative. We aren't trying to say that scanning a book turns it into something else, we're just saying that it is transformative. Then they go on to say the nature of the work should go in their favor as well because, hey, maybe it's orphaned, maybe it's out of print, maybe we can't find who has the copyright. And even if it's fiction and we could find it, it still shouldn't be held against us. In respect of the amount and substantiality of the portion used, they say, well, 
yeah, it's the entire work, but it's only a temporary lending period and the user can no longer access the book after that lending period until she checks it out again. And if the library only owns one physical copy of the work, then additional users must wait in line. There's a wait list concept. This is the whole premise of their CDL kind of concepting is if I have three copies of a book, I can only lend out three scans. And if all three scans are out, then you have to wait your turn for the next one. You won't remember that because they're going to change the rules on even their own white paper. Finally, they say, hey, we don't really affect the market for this. If there is a negative effect, it's unlikely to be counted against us because properly implemented CDL programs maintain an own-to-loan ratio that is comparable to physical lending. It probably doesn't affect the market. Don't worry about it. I look at this just from afar without even getting into the lawsuit that we're going to talk about and say, no, you're not really educational. You're not really commenting on what the copyrighted material is. The nature is something that is owned and commercialized and creative in all likelihood. So that goes against you. You're using the whole thing. That goes against you. And you definitely affect the market. That goes against you. It is the rare case where I look at something like this and say, no matter what you are asserting in your white paper, chances are you lose on every single ground. And you say, Rick, why didn't any of the publishers or authors come up against this before now? And I would say it has to do with that kind of largesse concept that we've talked about with respect to video game streaming. It didn't hurt them that much. It really wasn't that big of a deal. Or they were getting their ducks in a row for a potential lawsuit a couple of years from now. But COVID-19 and coronavirus really accelerated this. And over the last couple of years, other folks have spoken out about this particular issue. The Internet Archive, yes, but other folks that have been relying upon this kind of CDL concept. I've got a letter from the National Writers Union, and they wrote this, I believe, in February of 2019. And they speak exactly about what we just talked about. CDL is not comparable to lending of physical books by libraries. CDL is not fair use as defined in U.S. copyright law. And an exception to or limitation of copyright to allow CDL without permission or remuneration would not be permitted by the Berne Convention on Copyright, the international kind of discussion about whether or not authors and writers should receive funds for copyrights. CDL interferes with many of the normal ways, including new ways largely unnoticed by librarians that authors are earning money from written and graphic works included in so-called out-of-print books. There is no basis for a good-faith belief that CDL is legal under either U.S. or international law. It isn't. It's just an assertion about what you want to do. And a lot of people had a problem with that. But it got a lot worse. So... A few months ago, when COVID-19 started up here, the Internet Archive announced that they would be changing their library rules into what they were calling a national emergency library to provide digitized books to students and the public. To address our unprecedented global and immediate need for access to reading and research materials, as of today, March 24th, 2020, the Internet Archive will suspend wait lists. During the waitlist suspension, users will be able to borrow books from the National Emergency Library without joining a waitlist. They say this is a response to scores of inquiries from people that wanted our books. And they say, hey, these guys at MIT are in favor of this. In a global pandemic, robust digital lending options are key to a library's ability to care for staff in the community, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we recognize that authors and publishers are going to be impacted by this global pandemic as well. So 
you know, go buy one of the books that we give you for free if you're so inclined because the authors are hurting too. Now, as you might suspect, just looking at what this does, they get rid of their wait list. They get rid of their owned loaned ratio. What was already specious and problematic in their white paper completely falls apart. There is no attachment to the concept of exhaustion or first sale. There is no attachment to the various balancing tests for fair use. There is nothing that is linked to only having one physical copy of the work and having users wait in line. Nothing that says that this won't massively negatively impact the market. And as you know from the thumbnail, the authors and the publishers had finally had enough. I was made aware of this story from Engadget, who labeled it as book publishers sue Internet Archive for allegedly enabling piracy. But as always in virtual legality, we're going to look at the source material because that's where the fun lives. Now, this is a very long document. You've got four separate major publishers and all their lawyers. And so I think this is 60 pages long. We're not going to go for 60 pages here in virtual legality and on YouTube. YouTube doesn't like it when we go for 60 pages and make two-hour comments on these kinds of things. So one of the things we're going to do is we're going to skim. We're going to read the first sentences of various paragraphs just to get a feel for what's happening. And then when we get to the crux of the matter, the CDL, we're going to really dive in and talk about what these publishers say is happening because it is is what happening. The, the Internet Archive, if this goes all the way to the end, and usually these things will settle, in my opinion, they would lose this case because it's pretty clear infringement. I think it was clear infringement even with CDL and what they were doing before. I think it's even more clear infringement now with just not having wait lists at all. Take as many as you want. Have them for as long as you want. Everything's fine. Enjoy. And I don't think that's ultimately going to win the day. Uh, I think if you do want to see these kinds of things happen, a digital library, then the Copyright Act, as we've talked about in this space a lot in the past, needs reform. We need to start talking about what first sale could look like with respect to digital copies. And it might need an analog provision, a 109A, that kind of goes with the concepts of first sale, but makes sense when we're talking about eBooks and digital goods. But for right now, in this world, you can't just assert what you want the law to be, unless you're the executive, a governor, a president, and you just want to say what you think the law is. Hello, Section 230. But outside of those specific rules, you can't just do this, and you certainly can't do it without getting sued by other stakeholders that think that they're losing market share and losing money by your actions. So as I said, this is brought by four publishers. They claim that Defendant IA, that's Internet Archive for purposes of this claim, is engaged in willful mass copyright infringement. They say the scheme is astonishing. At its open library located at these various domains, IA currently distributes digital scan copies of over 1.3 million books, and its stated goal is to do so for millions more, essentially distributing free digital copies of every book ever written. Books have long been essential to our society. The publishing ecosystem not only depends on copyright law, it is historically intertwined with the founding of the United States, as we've talked about in this space. IA not only acts entirely outside of any legal framework, it does so flagrantly and fraudulently. And it proceeds despite actual notice that its actions constitute infringement. For the avoidance of doubt, this lawsuit is not about the occasional transmission of a title under appropriately limited circumstances, nor about anything permissioned or in the public domain. On the contrary, it is about IA's purposeful collection of truckloads of in-copyright books to scan, reproduce, and then distribute digital bootleg versions online. 
IA's website includes books of every stripe from bestsellers to scholarly monographs, from entertaining thrillers and romances to literary fiction, from self-help books to biographies, from children's books to adult books. Publishers have long supported public libraries. Hey, Judge, we aren't against libraries. Everybody loves a good library. We recognize the significant benefits to the public of ready access to books and other publications, but it's a partnership. And that's one that we have to have. And we can't just have a third party going and infringing our copyrights without getting involved with discussing things with us. IA defends its willful mass infringement by asserting an invented theory called controlled digital lending, the rules of which have been concocted from whole cloth and continue to get worse. If you see the word concocted in the lawsuit, you got a good claim coming. For example, at first, under this theory, IA claimed to limit the number of scanned copies of a title available for free download at any one time to the number of print books of that title in its collection. Though no provision under copyright law offers a colorable defense to the systemic, systematic copying and distribution of digital book files simply because the actor collects corresponding physical copies, then in the face of COVID-19 pandemic, IA opportunistically seized upon the global health crisis to further enlarge its cause, announcing with great fanfare that it would remove these already deficient limitations that were purportedly in place. Today, IA offers an enormous universe of scanned books to an unlimited number of individuals simultaneously in its National Emergency Library. IA's blatant, willful infringement is all the more egregious for its timing, which comes at the very moment that many authors, publishers, and independent bookstores, not to mention libraries, are both struggling to survive amidst economic uncertainty and planning deliberatively for future changing markets. Under whatever guise IA attempts to frame its massive infringement, whether adopting the invented CDL theory or filing or filling the self-appointed role as National Emergency Library, its actions find no support in the Copyright Act. IA's defenses of its actions, both before and after the onset of the COVID-19 crisis, are baseless. First, while IA claims to serve an educational purpose, education has long been a primary mission and market of publishers. It is authors and publishers who create the books of scholarship and literature for educators. Now, here we've got the publishers trying to espouse the value of their market, right? What they do as a company. And I don't think it's actually a, a very good argument to say we are the monopolist providers of educational materials, although people that make books are very much responsible for education in the U.S. and around the world. They're trying to frame that they're the good guys and IA is the bad guys. You see it at the end of the sentence. IA creates nothing. IA plays no role in the hard work of researching, writing, or publishing the works, or for that matter, in creating or sustaining the overall publishing ecosystem and its distinct partnerships and markets. Judge, these are breakers. These are wreckers. These are folks that destroy economies. And if we destroy this economy, there will be fewer books. There will be less education. Judge, we need to do something about this. Now, this is essentially a call to action on an almost political basis, a philosophical basis. And you see this at the front end of lawsuits all the time. This actually isn't kind of necessarily attached to specific legal provisions, as is the case with the Copyright Act claims directly. This is more just trying to establish we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. When you are thinking of these issues, Judge, when you are contemplating what justice looks like in this particular circumstance, remember, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. IA's self-serving assertion and promotion of controlled digital lending is both an actual legal doctrine and a justification for its infringement affronts the most basic realities of the law and the market it propels. As a matter of markets, IA's one-to-one -one conflation of print and ebooks is fundamentally flawed 
And then they go on to say digital books have different markets. They do different things. They don't expire. They don't become dog-eared. And that in and of itself is an issue. No concept of fair use supports the systematic mass copying or distribution of entire books for the purpose of mass reading. Or put another way, for the purpose of providing to readers the very thing that publishers and authors provide in the first place through lawful and established channels. Nor do IA's efforts to brand itself as a library somehow imbue it with any right to digitize and distribute unauthorized digital copies of books. Libraries are trusted institutions that serve the communities that fund them. When Congress contemplated the making of digital copies by libraries under 108, it engaged all relevant stakeholders and created a set of rational, targeted exceptions to infringement liability, exceptions that have no application to IA's actions. The creation, publication, and distribution of books is an ecosystem. Judge, they're breaking it. And then we get into the parties. Hey, we are all publishers. Hey, here's the Internet Archive. Uh, It does some damage. You have jurisdiction over this. Here's how books are published. Publishers and authors rely on copyright law to create functioning markets for books, as we've talked about. The development of functioning markets for ebooks. Ebooks have their own market, and it's a market that these publishers feel they have the right to enter into and to make money off of. And so when we are considering fair use analysis for what the Internet Archive wants to do, it's worth noting that they are breaking a market that maybe even if we aren't participating in as much as we would otherwise like to be right now, is a market that exists and is being harmed by the existence of this quote-unquote national emergency library. The established market equilibrium between authors, publishers, and libraries, where they talk about how books move around and how publishers get paid. Plaintiffs and libraries reacted rapidly to ensure library patrons have access to books during the COVID-19 lockdown. So this is, again, a kind of public policy argument or, or really a defense before it happens to say, hey, look, what they're going to tell you is that this was a special circumstance and they were needed to get information out and we were already handling that. Again, this particular argument doesn't necessarily find its place in the law, but as you can see when we're talking about lawsuits, it is very important to establish that you are the good guys, they're the bad guys, and if they were doing something that you could otherwise kind of think of as good, well, we were doing it anyway. And so that's not a reason to hold on their side of the legal question. Internet Archive unlawfully disrupts the book publishing ecosystem by infringing copyright on an industrial scale. Then they talk a little bit about the Internet Archive. Brewster Kale founded Internet Archive in 1996. Could also be Kali. I apologize for any mispronunciations there. IA reported more than $150 million of revenue in the last 10 years, according to publicly available tax filings. So this is a little bit of uh, wealth guilt, right? So one of the things you'll see also in this particular claim is, hey, they're a nonprofit judge, but they sure make a lot of money as a nonprofit. Now, they're not the only nonprofit in the country or the world that kind of has that relationship. And as it turns out, the Internet Archive actually makes a lot of its money from libraries and other, I guess, book owners or holders that use them to scan books. And one of the things that the publishers here have to kind of establish is that they aren't against the Internet Archive getting those licenses Uh, scanning things that are in the public domain, performing what is a useful function, I think, for a lot of people. I think most people think good thoughts about the Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, what it is that they do for the Internet. And so this was always going to be at least a somewhat risky PR proposition to say we are suing the Internet Archive, which I think has general goodwill, certainly amongst folks that use the Internet 
a lot. So they're trying to establish, hey, judge, they make a lot of money. Then they describe what the open library is. They talk about how it functions with a limit of 10 and how you had wait lists if they didn't have enough copies. They also talk about what they were doing here and how they were essentially acquiring these mass quantities of books in order to function in this particular way and then use a shell company that was also owned by the owner of the Internet Archive to move those books. Uh, and I'm going to find it here in the, in the lawsuit somewhere. I believe it's called maybe Better Worlds. Uh, that is this book company that can move the books for the Internet Archive and they describe how this market actually works and how it works to make the founder money. They talk about the user experience on the website, what it looks like to them, that books can either be in the read or borrow category. The books in the read category are books that IA presumably has concluded are in the public domain. For books in the read category, the website has no limit on how many users can download them, either at any point in time or in the aggregate, probably okay to the extent that they are actually in the public domain. Users who choose the read option can download to their computers, e-readers, or mobile devices a scanned copy of the entire book in a variety of digital formats that lack any DRM protection, including as a PDF file. Although the books that IA classifies in the read category are presumably supposed to be in the public domain, sometimes the books are in fact protected by copyright. For instance, at one point, any internet-connected individual could download copies of the modern classic To Kill a Mockingbird, which is still under copyright without any restrictions. So they're saying, Judge, hey, maybe you're okay with this in principle, but one of the things we're going to also talk about is that logistically, they are bad at it. Even if you agree that the CDL kind of legal analysis is correct, which we don't think it is, and I don't think it is here in virtual legality, even if you kind of go for that, you should note that they are bad at CDL. They're bad at keeping track of what's in the public domain or not. They're bad at keeping track of when a book is borrowed or not, and whether they have a physical copy to kind of go with that borrowing, which we will see later on in this claim. Under the second option, IA permits users to borrow titles from the website that it recognizes are not in the public domain through its so-called controlled digital lending protocols. Borrow is a euphemism for an illegal reproduction and distribution. Under IA's controlled digital lending, a website user can download a certain number of books at a given time, which IA has currently set at 10. Once IA has distributed the maximum number of books the user is allowed, he or she must check a book back in before taking another one out, although there is nothing to prevent a user from circumventing this limit by setting up multiple accounts. That was a little bit earlier on when they were describing the parties, but they point out that there aren't kind of certifications. You can just have a bunch of Gmail accounts if you wanted to have 100 books out, and that the Internet Archive really isn't interested in certifying those things. Again, establishing that even if you think CDL is a good idea and works under the current copyright law, they are bad at it. And certainly when we start talking about the National Emergency Library, they're not even kind of comporting with their own rules. Until the recent pandemic and the advent of IA's so-called National Emergency Library, IA claimed that it also enforced an own-to-loan ratio that restricted the number of users who could borrow a copyrighted book at once. In theory, this means that the number of scanned copies of a title downloaded from the website at any one time cannot exceed the number of print copies of that title owned by IA or its partner libraries. If that number is exceeded, then the user is ostensibly put on a web on a wait list. Users that have successfully checked out a book can read it immediately on the website's book reader platform. Then you get a few kind of 
descriptions of why that's bad, how it essentially is lowering the market value for these publishers' work because they don't do a good job, that IA doesn't do a good job of scanning these things, transcribing them. They bring up this image to show how ridiculous some of these things turn out. They have a comic strip here, which is undoubtedly very difficult to transcribe. Then they continue on. The open library is not a library. It is an unlicensed aggregator and pirate site. It's not an accredited library, as they claim. They say that the only reason they are being called accredited is because they got some funds from California under their Library Services and Technology Act, which they claim, I don't know this, they claim it in this complaint, is available to a lot of institutions that are not libraries under California law. They go on to say their industrial book scanning machine and global scanning operations make them a ton of money, and this is basically how they function They shift the cost of illegal book digitization onto publishers, libraries, and open library users because they do this all under their own rubric, and they even ask for donations in order to get it done, and the publishers and the authors and those kinds of folks don't see a dime. Those donations are labeled as sponsorships. You can see here they have a sponsor button uh, at the top where they essentially ask for money, and I believe it's described here it is... IA's book sponsorship scheme is breathtakingly brazen. In essence, IA tells its users which copyrighted books it wants to infringe. Then it asks users to pay a donation far in excess of the list price of the book for IA to go out and buy a print copy from an undisclosed source, possibly Better World Books, that shell company that the owner or founder of IA also owns and and can make money off of. Finally, IA uses the user's money to scan the book and put it online where anyone can get a copy for free, completing the copyright infringement process without spending a single dollar of its own money. Internet Archive absorbs entire libraries for the website. And then here's what I wanted to talk about, the specifics in their legal complaint about controlled digital lending. As we talked about at the top of this video, I think even in white paper form, it doesn't meet the tests required to comply with the Copyright Act. Uh, That's just my opinion, and different lawyers will have different views on these things. Certainly you found lawyers to write that white paper that suggests that they have a good faith belief that this is fine. Now, as with anything in virtual legality, you always have to look at the tilt of the situation, and certainly the Internet Archive being at the top line of that particular white paper suggests that that's what they wanted to find. Not really a research paper as much as an assertion of what they already wanted to to do. As described by the publishers here, controlled digital lending is as follows. IA relies on the contrived theory of controlled digital lending described above as its central defense to charges of copyright infringement. But CDL is an invented paradigm that is well outside copyright law, appears to have sprung up in response to the objections of copyright owners to IA's infringing activities, and, in any event, does not excuse IA's massive infringement. IA is a leader and organizer of a larger proselytizing movement, hate that word, of academics and activists seeking to find a way to justify a scan-first, figure-out-the-details-later approach to the mass digitization of copyrighted books. In 2018-19, IA sponsored the drafting of a white paper on controlled digital lending of library books, which we just looked at. IA and Brewster Kale broadly promote CDL, speaking widely and engaging in a broad public relations campaign, inducing others, including libraries, to join their cause and cynically using them to reflect their glow of legitimacy onto the website. 
but IA's controlled digital lending finds no actual support in the law. Now, interestingly enough, from my perspective, if you've got the backing of a number of libraries, if you've got that support in the community, I, as a lawyer, look at that and say, okay, maybe you've got that support for a change in the law. What you do with that support then is you go to the legislature and you say, hey, the Copyright Act needs to be changed to allow this concept. CDL is the kind of thing that could have its own provision in the Copyright Act. Detail this congressperson and let's get this made a part of the law. You don't just assert that it already is a part of the law or you wind up on the other end of a lawsuit like this one. As a preliminary matter, Plaintiffs challenge whether IA maintains the detailed records or practical control necessary to sustain the so-called own-to-loan ratio that is the cornerstone of CDL, i.e. the notion that the number of electronic copies of a book for download from the website at a given time never exceeds the number of physical copies of the book owned by IA or one of its partner libraries. With respect to the website's titles for which the corresponding print books are allegedly stored at partner libraries, it defies reason that the partner libraries will have the wherewithal to faithfully and consistently remove a book from circulation each time it is borrowed on the website and put it back on the shelf when the website version is checked back in. That is entirely accurate, right? Just knowing how the world works, what practical logistics actually are, it does seem to strain credibility that if you're working with partner libraries, which they are, they've got all these collections of books that they are using to backstop this entire endeavor, They're not going to be checking the exact website and seeing, oh, it was taken out now. We're going to take that one down off the shelf. Oh, it was back. We can put it back up and take it down. No, none of that's going to work that way. Now, maybe these partner libraries can give certain amounts of books to something like the Internet Archive and just keep them in the back room and not ever put them out on the shelf. That kind of thing would secure a kind of CDL compliance, but I also doubt that as well. These libraries aren't going empty, and I don't know whether or not they would have contributed only a portion of their collection to something like the Internet Archive. So this does ring true to me as I read this sentence the first time that, yeah, it does seem like a very difficult thing, and they don't appear to have the checks necessary to actually assure that that is what's happening. As for the truckloads of books warehoused by IA, IA archivist Jason Scott admitted in a recent tweet that for the millions of physical copies acquired by IA, only one or two unique copies are kept and stored at the physical archive. Duplicates are donated to various charities and nonprofits. But even if IA were scrupulously following its own invented theory of controlled digital lending, the theory has no legal justification. First, IA and its supporters relied heavily on the first sale doctrine codified at 17 U.S.C. 109, which entitles the lawful owner of a particular lawfully made copy of a copyrighted work, like a book, to sell or otherwise dispose of the possession of that copy or phono record. The central thesis of the white paper sponsored by IA was that the broader principles reflected in this doctrine should be imported into the fair use doctrine to protect IA's actions. But as enacted by Congress, the first sale doctrine is carefully confined as a limitation on only the distribution right. That's what we talked about, right? When you look at this, it's specifically targeted at 106.3, the distribution right and not every other right. They're entirely correct in this assertion right here. It permits the owner of a copy to distribute the particular copy that has been lawfully acquired. For example, as in the secondary sale of a hardcover book or a painting, but it provides no exemption from the copyright holder's exclusive right to reproduce a work. 
The linchpin of IA's whole operation is that it scans a print book to create a digital file, a classic unauthorized reproduction of a work that puts the application of Section 109 clearly out of reach. Right? Number one, copyright holders have the exclusive right to reproduce the work in copies. And 109 doesn't hit number one. It only hits number three. So they're entirely right. Faced with these inconvenient facts, IA has also advanced the illogical premise that its massive illegal copying and distribution is format shifting, protected by the fair use doctrine. But the rudimentary use of a scanner to format shift print books into digital works for distribution to the public does not constitute either a permit personal use or a transformative use. In fact, if you remember, they specifically say we don't consider this transformative. We're not relying on the concept that it is transformative. So they might try to defend it now with that, but they were never claiming it in the first instance. At bottom, CDL is based on the false premise that a print book and a digital book share the same qualities, but they don't. They go on to talk about the fact that ebooks have a different marketplace. IA's mass digitization of books is potentially even more pernicious than ordinary online piracy. First, its use of library branding deceives some users into thinking the website is a legitimate site. Moreover, IA not only makes millions of dollars as outlined above in ways related to its systematic infringement, but also uses those profits to fuel its mission to fill the digital library of Alexandria with every book ever written. Allowing IA to operate the open library for in-copyright works will create an indelible impression for libraries and readers that digital format books should be free and can be free just as soon as IA scans a print copy. This in turn will impair the sales and licensing of books and ebooks that actually make it possible to pay the high cost of writing and publishing the quality books that IA purports to value so much yet pays little or nothing to sustain. That paragraph being a direct indictment of whether or not this entire endeavor affects the market or prospective market of these books in ebook form. So they attacked basically every kind of component of CDL, just as we did at the top of this video. And then, of course, the National Emergency Library makes it much, much worth. In a feigned act of magnanimity, IA assured authors that it would abide by a notice and takedown system, but this turns copyright law on its head. Copyright owners have the power to decide in advance how their exclusive rights will be exercised. Copyright is not an opt-out system whereby infringers can distribute copyrighted works for free with impunity until they are told to stop. The Copyright Act does not and never has put the burden on authors and publishers to police the unlawful actions of direct infringers, which in the case of the IA not only copies, uploads, and distributes infringing files, but asserts conditions and procedures for agreeing to stop the infringement. They then go on to say, hey, this ain't the DMCA, right? Them giving you the right to opt out sounds a lot like the DMCA, but the DMCA is about third-party platforms, and the Internet Archive is never going to have DMCA safe harbor protection because they are the first party. They are the ones doing this. So they continue and they say, hey, there's no fair use here. They don't mean their own kind of made up qualifications. They cause us harm. And so please find that they are directly infringing our copyright. And if you don't want to find that they're directly doing it, if you want to have the users of the website involved as well, say that they are secondarily infringing our copyright. They're inducing that infringement by providing this service. And even if the users are the direct infringers, they are very much involved, especially after this entire national library concept was put into place. So 50 some odd pages later, we arrive at 
the answer to the question, is the Internet Archive engaged in copyright piracy? I think the answer to that, if we look at the actual Copyright Act, we look at what they claim allows them to do what they wanted to do even before they expanded it. We look at how their white paper kind of looks, the arguments that it makes, and then we look at what the lawsuit actually says. I think the answer to that is very much yes. And that doesn't have to be an answer that you like. We say that a lot in virtual legality, right? Maybe you love the Internet Archive. Maybe you think they are doing a service for mankind by putting all these digitized books online and that these publishers should get on board. Maybe, maybe you do. Then a change in the law is what is required. You can't just do what you want and say that the Copyright Act says what you want it to say, no matter how nicely formatted your white paper is. And that's the real lesson in virtual legality, I think, is if you want to look for a change in these kinds of things, absolutely. I understand wanting to. In fact, other countries have what we might consider a kind of mechanical uh, license associated with these kinds of things, library lending, digital lending, where much like music uh, has in the Copyright Act, certain specific things that are lent out on a digital basis get a specific amount of royalties paid to authors and publishers, and otherwise nobody is involved. There's no negotiation, there's no contracts. Maybe that is the kind of thing that could help to facilitate this kind of business model. But certainly the Internet Archive would like to do it for free and not to pay eight cents per copy or whatever it might be on a mechanical lien or a mechanical license in the law. And so that's why they went out with this. That's why they did this. They expanded their kind of presence with this entire national emergency library concept. And now here we are. This has been Virtual Legality for Day. We talk about these kinds of things all the time in this space. I hope you enjoyed it. Please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell, all the other good stuff that you love to do on YouTube because they change whatever buttons you're supposed to hit seemingly every quarter, if not every month. So please do that. Tell folks that we are here. Tell folks that we are talking about important issues on a regular basis, generally related to your life on the internet or in pop culture, all through the lens of business and law as only a business law firm can do. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.